Hey, everybody. It's your pal, Jay Stone. Welcome back to another year of Both Laugh, the Dying Scene Quarantine Chat Show. Uh, it seems strange to say, but it's the third calendar year that we've been uh, doing this show now. Thanks to any of you that have caught one or more of the last 49 episodes, uh, which means that we're up to number 50. Um, first episode of 2022 was a really fun one. Uh, we got to chat with John San Juan of the band The Hush Drops, which uh, some of you may know. Uh, they're based out of Chicago. They are sort of a power pop trio, I guess you will. They've been around for a long time. They put out their third album. Uh, it's called The Static on Pravda Records um, back in, well, I think officially back in November digitally. Uh, and then it came out on vinyl, thanks to Adele, uh, a month or so later. But it is out and you should be able to pick it up everywhere. And there are links down below wherever you're listening to this. Uh, really fun chat with John. John does vocals and guitar for Hush Drops. Uh, he's joined in the band by Jim Shapiro, who plays bass, who some of you, if you um, are of a particular age, uh, may remember from his several stints uh playing drums for veruca salt um he is that band nina gordon's uh brother uh a really fun band uh, i'm sure you all know seether and a bunch of other songs like that from the early to mid 90s great band uh and john and jim were both joined by joe camarillo on drums um and as you'll learn during our interview with john uh joe passed away rather untimely uh, about a year ago just as they had most of the album done and recorded, there were still a few uh, other stems that and, and bits and pieces that they wanted to finish up. So we talk a lot about Joe's influence on the band over the years, Joe's influence on this album uh, and on his posthumous sort of um, role in bringing the album to fruition. They had to do a few really interesting things when it came to recording uh, over some of the drums that uh, Joe had left on songs that weren't finished yet. So this is a really fun chat. Hopefully you all check it out. Uh, it's coming to you right after the intro music. Uh, stay tuned. Catch you on the other side. Well, the recording's in progress. Happy New Year, gang. It is your pal, Jay Stone. As always, uh, we are kicking off our third calendar year of doing Both Laugh, the Dying Scene Quarantine chat show, because quarantine doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I didn't think we'd get to episode 50, but we are here now at episode 50 of this little show that we started to kill time uh, during the early days of COVID quarantine. And with this latest uh, surge, seems like we're going to be able to keep the show going for a while. Uh, so um, we are joined for episode 50, which to me is a milestone, uh, by a guy that we have talked about recently a couple of times within the last year, but never actually talked to. And that is John San Juan of long running Chicago Power Trio. Hush drops, John. Thank you for coming on the show. I am uh, I'm excited about this. 
Jay, happy new year. Thanks for having me here. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a uh, part of episode 50. That's, that's pretty big. I didn't know when we started doing this, well, just about two years ago now, I didn't know really what it would become. We started doing them just sort of over Instagram live because I don't know it seemed like a thing to do and it was easy and people could give feedback and it was a way to connect with people that had their plans shut down because of COVID and whether it was tour dates or recordings or whatever, and uh, didn't know how long it would go on. And so it's pretty cool to be at 50 episodes of a thing that I, we never even planned on doing. So I don't know, 50 seems like a cool number. <laughs> uh, so as I, as I mentioned, we've talked about you a couple of times before on this show, because we've been uh, privileged to have the great Josh Caterer on not once, but twice. Um, I think both times were in calendar year 2021, once at the beginning and once at the end to talk about the two Josh Caterer trio albums, uh, the hideout sessions and the space sessions. And I wonder, we've obviously talked to Josh at length about that process, but before we get into hush drop stuff, I was sort of curious to get your take on how that project came together and how that process was of recording what essentially were two live albums via live stream and in front of a, a non-existent crowd and, and all of that sort of really bizarre and interesting and only during a pandemic uh, thing. So I wonder if you could talk about that part for a little bit. Yeah, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Josh Caterer is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his, really admire his, just his talent, every piece of it. Um, so just getting the call from him was a bit shocking you know, um, in this sort of period of complete inactivity, you know, and it says something to his uh, creative mind that he just saw an opportunity there. Well, well, I can't do, you know, street fairs or festivals, right? But uh, but I could still play music and still get music out there and perform in a sense. Um, so I didn't. I didn't take any convincing. You know, <laughs> I was kind of like, uh, you know, would you like to play? Yeah, I'd like to play. Yeah. Um, and I and that had been honestly, um, if you're listening, Josh, that had been a long held <laughs> dream of mine. That uh, you know, so that was great. And but it was cool because the three of us, Josh and I, and John Perrin, um, and I've played with John before. But the three of us was such a new thing. And, you know, those first few times we went into a rehearsal space with these sort of very bare bones arrangements of Josh's just, you know, he would basically have a key for a song and, you know, some idea of a guitar part and, you know, that was really exciting and really going from nothing. It was going from zero to a hundred. It was going from sort of nothing to complete. All right. We're building this from the ground up and it's this new crew. And, oh, and by the way, we're going to, we set a date. So we're going to be going to have all this stuff ready and be on camera in two weeks. <laughs> it was almost like I just watched, I don't know if you watched the Beatles get back over the holidays. I haven't watched it yet. No, uh, but it was a similar thing where, you know, looking back, it seems like, well, God, why would you set such a lofty goal in yeah, such yeah, a yeah. short, you know, there was a lot, you know, um, 
but it worked and i think that the pressure of you got to be camera ready and album ready and sort of first take camera and album ready in two weeks was uh you know that was a positive i think it brought out something in everybody that was really cool so so it had this you know and this is before i think we were just starting to hear murmurings about well you know possibly seniors and medical personnel will be getting vaccinated in a few months so it was it was really exciting um to uh you know be able to communicate like that and so the project just had this kind of built-in goodwill attached to it and it's unlike anything i've ever done and um and you know and we've become this this band family since then because as the you know obviously the next thing was well let's uh let's do another one of these because yeah. you know um and then yeah right when we got into the summer and things were opening up to the extent that they were that we were able to get out and start playing in front of people and yeah it's just it's this whole new brotherhood that uh I would have never even uh, dreamed into existence. So, you know, um, the fact that Josh could sort of foresee all of that is is pretty remarkable from my point of view. Yeah, and the ability to make something out of uh, what has been a prolonged, uh, really dark period, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, you know, is to, to, be, to be able to be creative that way and to still continue to put out things when maybe your A plan and B plan and C plans for the years uh, didn't, weren't able to pan out. So to be able to actually get together and pull something new out of that is, is uh, amazing. Also, it sounds really good. That first, uh, that first record sounds really good. And you and John for, for a rhythm section that hadn't played really much together at all and certainly hadn't played those songs very much. Right. You guys are tight. <laughs> Well, well, thank you. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's something about the sort of, I feel like the mechanics of a band, of an ensemble is that, you know, yeah, I, I have whatever abilities I have and as do the other two, but you, what you deliver in that situation, what you discover in that situation is some new gear that you switch into because, well, well, I got to play like this now because that's what, josh's voice is bringing out in me and that's what uh john's drumming and likewise all of us with each other i think we found you know josh had told me and may have told you as well that whatever he had sort of envisioned the three of us sounding like once we actually started playing together he was like okay well it's actually not that at all it's yeah, some yeah. un undiscovered thing but it's for sure you know um just all of us reacting to each other's instincts and we very much talked about the fact that the first album was sort of billed as a josh caterer solo album and the second one the space sessions uh is very much billed as the josh caterer trio and and so the sort of emphasis on that it isn't just josh's solo project it's that you guys are a tangible uh three-headed monster now 
Yeah. And, you know, again, uh, I, I would have never dared to dream of it. Uh, it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's wonderful. And, uh, you know, and there's just the, you know, even the the friendship of, that the three of us have is a sort of very strong, but very new thing that was born out of this experiment. Obviously, from playing in hush drops, uh, playing guitar and especially singing in hush drops, does that when working in a different role in a power trio still so the the sort of dimensions of the band are are the same as hush drops but you play sort of a different role so does your sort of long time position as the the vocalist and guitar player in a power trio give you sort of a different understanding for what josh was trying to do and what you three collectively are trying to do now that you're playing bass in that project well conceivably um you know i guess the only thing that you would learn from leading a band for three decades is uh, that if you go in in a sort of supporting role, um, pay attention to the <laughs> pay attention to the boss. You know um, that uh, you know. My feeling was I was going to play whatever I could get away with, and eventually, Josh or John Perrin would say, "Oh my God, will you stop doing that?" and uh, you know, that never quite happened, but that's sort of what I figured that was my stop sign, you know, um, <laughs> again, I mean, a lot of things now, as I describe them relate to, you know, uh, being a parent. Um, and that's one of them that you see with, uh, children where they're sort of, you know, well, I'll, I'll know the limit when I hit it, you know, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but why, <laughs> why inhibit yourself in advance you right know? right i'm gonna do this till you tell me not to <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that 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 yeah that was what i sort of went into this with yeah uh, yeah how old are your kids by the way i'm just they, sort of uh, envisioning my daughter and and her she's gonna be 14 on wednesday but uh that definitely remember those those periods of like looking back at you and to see if this is an oh, okay man. thing for me <laughs> no. to do and if you don't shake your head no then i'm gonna do it whether it's jumping right. on the couch or playing with a instrument oh, or whatever <laughs> that's sort of yeah right that very sort of like faux stealth yeah eye contact where like okay i know you're looking at me even though you're kind of making some effort to be slick about it right um mine are uh 12 and 16 two boys and so yeah developmentally just a lot of the same stages that you're in as a parent um it's sort of adjacent you know although i guess i feel like really the it never stopped like the things that they're trying to do and those boundaries they're trying to push don't change uh those things change but the i guess the trying to push boundaries never changes like what the boundaries are it's going to be a little different but instead of you know maybe it's staying up late maybe it's you know not doing homework or it's you know being on the phone or being on the ipad or whatever oh yeah and you know i mean um it's it's interesting obviously there's an increased uh range for reasoning you know that i think we're all thankful for but you know it's only so increased you know (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. And I say that as a 42 year old, it's only, it's only so increased. Yeah. I say, I say it with a lot of love. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's talk about the static. The static is the new hush traps record. It came out s- technically, I guess, somewhere between November and December based on 
backups and based on how uh, Adele gummed up the works of getting everybody's vinyl pressed for a year. <clears throat> I feel very lucky to have gotten our vinyl. Look, I mean, see, I've, see, I've actually got a copy here. That's I'm, wonderful. So, that yeah, that was a because uh, that wasn't a sure thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, right, so you know, um, it's here, and there was a sort of you know this. I'm going to say low level anxiety because I'm 52. So I think my anxieties are starting to get a little more, <laughs> you know, whatever can manageable. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the scale is changing. Right. Um, but thinking like, Oh God, we're going to have all of this, this huge publicity campaign. And, um, you know, then the album's going to get here in two years. You know? <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, the fact that everything's kind of, reasonably peachy with that is nice uh, i think there was a month between sort of you know pre-orders digital release and lp and uh that's on the that's really on the that's on the lucky side at the moment for sure i think one of the nice things at least in my experience uh in interacting with pravda records is that they sort of wait till it seems like there is an actual date to launch that stuff. Some labels will launch pre-orders and then you just kind of get it when you get it. And so I will routinely get packages that show up that I forgot that I had ordered because. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you know, surprise albums. Yeah. 10 Same. months later. Yeah. But I do like that. The Pravda seems to wait until the end and there's not much lead time. It's like, okay, pre-order it. And it's going to be out within the next couple of weeks. I, I kind of like that. Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's a, um, it's a, it's a thing, um, you know, and I know that the space sessions, um, you know, there's a bit, the lag is a little greater, yeah. um, you know, and I don't think Josh handed in our record much later than I did mine, but really? somehow that distance of a month yeah, or whatever yeah. it was, was just, uh, you know, prohibitive enough, um, I'm fine with blaming Adele for that. That's oh, sure. Yeah, no, no. She she had it coming. Yeah. Um, how long a process was it? So there's there's obviously some gravity behind the album that we'll discuss in a minute, but how long a process was it between when the album was done and submitted until uh, it actually was released? Well, I remember, um, you know, sending uh, Ken Goodman at Pravda, sending him rough mixes in sometime in March and just saying like, Oh, this is, and I, we had already done the deal for the Josh record. So, you know, we were developing a friendship and business relationship and I sent him the stuff. I was just sending him song after song. And at some point, like, yeah, let's do this. But John, if we're going to do this, um, I'm going to need everything from you is I need it yesterday. So um, on my end, that just kind of meant making the, whatever the last two, for the final sessions of overdubbing and mixing and make them happen as quickly as possible. And yeah, so I had the, I think I shipped the, the album sides, the mixes off to the mastering house in late April. Um. So quite honestly, um, by that metric, having an album, you know, by uh, seven, seven eight months. Yeah. 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 I, I can't complain about that. Yeah. Um, 
as I mentioned before, there's there's obviously some gravity um, behind this album. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Hush Traps have been a power trio for for the better part of two decades. Anyway, uh, Joe Camarillo was the drummer. He passed away almost a year ago at this point, uh, sort of early and and unexpectedly. And so that brought, as I understand it, sort of a a real weight to uh, the decision to put the album out and to, and to sort of pull it together as a finalized thing. And so uh, how done was it prior to Joe's passing? Was everything mostly done or? It was in a state, I mean, got mostly done. I couldn't put yeah. it better. It was in a real state of mostly done. And it was in a real state of mostly done when everything shut down in 2020. Um, we had recorded uh, we, I think we, you know, we'd done two sessions in one in 18 and one in 19, and we had all of this material and it was like, well, the plan was, okay, spring of 2020, we'll record, you know, the final, you know, two or three or four load bearing songs that would really tie the room together. And then that plan went on hold, obviously. And you know, and Joe and I talked about it constantly. We had this, you know, messenger thread that um, was just, it was active every day and, until it wasn't, you know, and yeah. we were always talking about the band and the record and, you know, what we were going to get up to. And, you know, so when he died, I wasn't thinking about the album, Um no, certainly not initially. It was just, sure. you know, this, you know, um, this a lot, you know, this shock and sadness and bereavement and, you know, whatever happens when your best friend is, you know, gone unexpectedly like yeah. that. And I think that it must have been maybe a month later or thereabouts or month month and a half later where i started thinking you know we have this you know all of this music that we recorded in the last you know our last couple years as a band and i felt like it just had a certain strength to it and a certain quality to it that to my way of thinking um you know it'd be a real shame to just sit on this and so and that was also kind of the thing that pulled me out of that initial stage of, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. of grief, you know? Right. Um, and I think that I hear, I hear this a lot. It's sort of a common thing, like whatever the surviving members of queen throwing that big thing for Freddie at yeah, Wembley, yeah, yeah. like, okay, well, all right, we've got a project. We've got a goal. Now we've got all this sort of graft ahead of us. Um, and so I looked at what we had and what we didn't have. We had a lot. There were a couple of songs that we'd been playing in our last few years that were, you know, they were pretty special. And I think about, is there some way to get them on the record? And there had actually been a gig that we'd done a couple years before Joe died that unbeknownst to us had been recorded and and we sort of knew about this but at the time it was like well it was in a brewery and you know we probably sounded like you know we probably sounded like people who had been drinking free beer all night um, <laughs> and you know, didn't I, know they were being recorded 
Yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, you know, um, I, I, you know, um, so it wasn't something that we had sought out. Yeah. And, but, you know, then in the sort of stage of picking up the pieces last year, I thought, well, I, I should reach out to the guy who recorded it and see if he still has the the multi-tracks. And, and he did. And, and I listened to them. And there's you know two songs that we used from it where Joe's performances were not just adequate, but like explosively spectacular. And, and that gave a lot of the mojo and the energy to this, the, this, the sort of the idea of finishing the record was like, okay, well now we've got, not only do we have what we had, but we have something that honestly raises the bar a little bit. Um, yeah, we've, we've got to do it now. Um, right. And so that was a pretty short journey then to just, okay, what, what do we need to finish this? And I had a couple of demos that John Perrin actually um, drummed on um, also songs that we had intended to record with Joe. So yeah, the bulk of it is, you know, dedicated sessions that were meant to be a record and, and yet some of the most striking stuff was kind of, you know, gaffer taped and chewing gum, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. affixed. Yeah. After, right. uh, right. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, so and in some way that's, that's given me an affection for it beyond what I might normally have for an album. It's you interesting. Know. You mentioned that. And I don't think I knew that piece about that part of it being recorded uh, live, but there's, there's a point late in the album and I'm trying to, one of the, I feel like it's one of the last couple songs, Secrets, or maybe somewhere back there that uh, that it seems like there's crowd noise sort of yes. at the very end of the song. And I went, oh, that's interesting. So I'm assuming that that would be one of the tracks that that kind of got left on. Right. And there was something so novel about the crowd noise as it existed because, um, you know, it wasn't an idea like let's have crowd noise on the record. There was something so novel about that particular crowd noise because that song, as we arranged it, had this very abrupt ending. So the crowd noise is, has this weird kind of crescendo of surprised people deciding to applaud. <laughs> right. Uh, and you can hear the like, oh, yeah, 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 right. Uh, and and so, uh, yeah, that, that, that applause is there by virtue of its just its silliness, you know. Was the rest of that, with the performance that's on the record, is the rest of that from that live performance too? Or did you guys go back in and then re-record your parts? Oh, you know, I gave myself the liberty of doing a sober lead vocal on it. Um, I thought it... <laughs> you know, I'm spit out my seltzer on that one. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You may as well, you know, sing the words that you wrote. And, uh, um, you know, and I felt like, well, God, Joe has set such a standard with his drumming uh, on this track. Jim and I may as well make our contributions as, uh, you know, as fantastic as they could be. And it also created a sort of opportunity. Um, yeah. So not only to sort of present the songs in a semi-polished fashion, um, but also, you know, it was one last chance to work with Joe's playing. Sure. Um, 
so yeah it's this right secrets and psychic space is the other song oh, okay similarly derived yeah um is that a that's got to be a different challenge that's probably a unique challenge in trying to record studio parts and i say this as a completely untrained musician but uh trying to record studio parts over a live drum track and i don't just mean live in the studio but live performance because there's a different energy and there's a different sort of ambiance and the whole thing is very different so trying to put all that stuff in the right spot when you're recording a studio version over a live drum that's got to be an interesting challenge yeah oh yeah it's very different and of course you know the three of us playing not knowing we're being recorded you know, again, I I don't want to overuse the word brewery, but yeah, uh, yeah. it's relevant. Um, all of that. Um, yeah, that's such a, it's just such a different thing from, you know, you know, the three of us playing live in the studio and kind of knowing that the, you know, the tape is rolling and, you know, whatever the clock is ticking, all of those things. Um, yeah, it's a lot freer and people are taking different kinds of chances you're taking chances in either case but i think live is so you know in the moment um but yeah it was it was odd i we sort of had to figure out how to do it so if we're putting these like slightly more we can't be too precise in what we put on it because then it just doesn't match you right know? right um so this mixture between sort of you know, arranging it, but also like letting it breathe, I guess. Um, and I especially felt with, because I was so into what Joe had played, I thought, well, I need to keep my contributions more simple than I normally would in a band situation because I really want his improvisations to be front and yeah, center. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that was kind of the, the structure of the band always was that it was like, you know, one of those things where, you know, yeah, I guess I was singing and I was playing guitar and I'd written most of the material, but having a drummer like Joe in the band really, for me, the focal point was always, and the sort of make or break, break thing, the thing that made a gig or a recording as special as it could be, or, you know, maybe, you know, when it didn't achieve liftoff, um, it was, for me, that was always Joe's drumming. So it was kind of like having Jimi Hendrix back there on the drums <laughs> and trying to front a band and sing in front of that, Yeah, you know, and it worked. Um, but to my mind, you know, when we were on stage or when we were recording, I always felt like, well, he's, he's really calling the shots here and he's leading this in a very, you know, in a way that was, you know, we never spoke about it or, or planned it, but that was just the dynamic of the band. Are there songs that, that change particularly on this album that changed from time to time from when you initially sort of fleshed them out and then presented them to Jim and Joe and had their sort of input and in knowing that like, if Joe wanted to take a song in a different direction that you didn't see, was that sort of a normal thing? Oh, yeah. And I learned really early on that, well, I learned really on, early on that, you know, 
I mean, I was response. I had a responsibility. Like the composition had to be compelling. The you know chords and melody and lyrics. Um, and but beyond that, you know, its actual shape was always going to be something that we discovered through playing together. And it could go pretty, you know, it could go a real long way. Something like, I don't know, I had a room, um, the way that that kind of rises and falls at the end and all of that, like, that's not something that I would have conceived of. And that, that came from, you know, just both of them getting a hold of it and, uh, and just that openness, letting it go where, you're, you know, that sort of the trust exercise, letting it go where they want to take it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a sort of big song to end the album. If people haven't heard it yet, I had a room is it's gotta be what six minutes long, something in there. There's a couple of really big, like jam guitar solo things, which I think are some of my favorite parts of hush drops, but I say that as a failed guitarist <laughs> <laughs> between, between secrets and that song, the, the guitar work is, is uh, some of the best on the album, but yeah, that that's, you know, it's not a short, sweet, compact power rock song. It's this big sort of, like you said, there's, there's some peaks and valleys and a few crescendos involved. And yeah, that's a, that's a big song. And, and I actually would have guessed not knowing if you had told me that there were a couple of songs that were recorded at least part live, I would have assumed maybe that was one of them because of the way that it kind of flows and jams and stretches out. And so I would have picked that as a song that came from a bigger jam. Well, God, if I mean, if I'm going to brag on these guys, which is, you know, I mean, it's my job. I think. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> my, my job in life, really. It's that um, as we went along as a band, um, the thing that we continually discovered and discovered more and more was that our best part, our best feature was the sort of unscripted element. The, I guess the more wild um, risk-taking and just kind of imperfect, really. Like the scrappier it got, the more it seemed like, oh, well then that sounds like music now. It's exciting. Um, And as opposed to, sort of master building, like making a Lego set and coming in and really, okay, like we can't have any noise before the track and you, know, you sped up a little bit there. Like the further we got away from those sort of, you know, okay, is everybody in tune? The further we got away from all of the sort of scaffolding, the more, you know, and I, I, I can't speak to anyone else's enjoyment of it, but for the three of us, it really came to life and became something that we were more and more. Oh, okay. So now we're, so that became the thing we started looking for or responding to. And, you know, this, t- the takes that we did, there was a day of recording in the summer of 2019 where we had cut 10 songs that day. And it was the day that we did, I had a room, um, you know, among others and, I remember that day, like, it's like we'd all, we'd finally arrived at that place of sort of peak um, unhinged, peak, <laughs> like looking for the, you know, obviously, yeah, you didn't want to have some horrible glitch or error in there that just kind of undermined the song, but, 
whatever the happy space is like i had a room where it's kind of has a slightly unpredictable dynamic feel um you know that was always when we thought okay well that's the take you know um and and that took you know that took a lifetime of being in a band together to realize that even on some subconscious level that that was what we liked about um our collective did you record most of that stuff live in the studio together? Yeah, that was, uh, and that was an idea. That was an idea that, that Joe had hatched many, a couple albums ago, where it was the first record that we made was just me and Joe, and for a lot of reasons, um, you know, it was pretty polished and fairly precise, and on that level, you know, sufficiently effective. Um, but I know a few years later when we talked about, you know, making another album, his idea was like, well, I think the only thing that would really be interesting would be sort of trying to capture our live sound. If we could do that on an album, then, you know, that'd be something worth doing. And there were these points of reference. Um, the one I'm thinking of right now is Van Halen, like their first handful of albums have this real, um well certainly there's an energy to them and they're not overly precise and most there's just an excitement there or whatever and it's experience that we'd had on stage a few times thought like well wait a minute why don't our records sound like that and you know yeah obviously it's a thing that can be done it could be that can be harnessed or marshaled or untamed in some way um so yeah that was you know that was the type of suggestion that Joe would make. And it just grew and grew until, and so, yeah, as a requirement of that, it always meant the three of us playing at the same time. And you probably, I mean, this may be a thing that you've, you know, I know it appears in books and interviews and maybe other musicians that you've spoken to where people will talk about things like, yeah, you know, Jim's headphones fell off when we were doing the take and that almost made us say, okay, well, this has got to be the one. Yeah. 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 There's uh, who was I talking to? And this wasn't for any sort of interview, but uh, the band face to face California punk rock band for yeah. 30 years or so. Now I've become good friends with them over the years and, and, and friends with a guy that recorded a few of their albums. His name is Chad Blinman. He lives in Boston now and teaches at Berkeley. He kind of moved away from the studio recording thing. Um, and I remember they went on hiatus, oh God, 2001, two, somewhere in there. And the last album they recorded before that, I know they recorded sort of live as a three-piece in studio. And and I know that there are parts in there where I think the drummer cracked a cymbal or something. I know that he dropped a stick at some point, like somebody dropped a pick somewhere along the line, but that just that's the take that ended up. And there's things you don't necessarily no, unless you get told that and then go back and listen to it and it gives it like this whole different energy. But I, I've always, I mean, maybe it's the, I know you've um, referenced Crazy Horse uh, in a few other interviews, but it's, that's very much like that's sort of my reference point for a lot of that stuff is Neil going in the studio in the barn and hitting record and that's what came out. <laughs> oh you, yeah. You never knew if it was going to go off the rails or who was going to, be playing fast and slow and when it worked it was brilliant and when it didn't work it was a mess 
but that's oh, part sure. of the thing, you know? Right. It's a risk worth taking sure. um, if you're into it. Yeah. And no, what you're saying about face-to-face, um, it's funny. That's a thing like dropping a stick or cracking a symbol or having something fall over. Um, it wakes, it wakes you up. I, yeah. I'll definitely say that about it. And uh, so that in itself is an energy that you couldn't contrive, you know? Right. But I think also that, that maybe the punk rock garage rock, whatever we call this sort of spectrum, uh, it sort of lends itself to that in a way that maybe some other, you know, more poppy things don't. No, I don't think Adele's going to be watching this and say, <laughs> you know what, I'm going to have, this is what I want for my next record. You know, <laughs> We're just going 30- to the studio and press record and see what happens. <laughs> 35 is going to have a real, you know, unhinged energy to it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine, imagine how long the vinyl wait will be. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. For the Adele crazy horse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, it's it's um, that's a thing, and I and I know I'm not the only uh, person you've spoken to who's in this. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, and again, stressing that I feel that I'm on the luckier half of it, you know, for sure. Um, but uh, it is funny that yeah, Adele has really, I mean, instantly became the uh, the face of that. Uh, yeah, 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 issue, yeah. And and obviously it's not just Adele. It's the big labels and it's the reissuing of albums that everybody already has seven copies of. And oh, it's the yeah. whole the whole thing. And and it's all that record store day has become the sort of commercial and, and whatever. I could go on and on and on. <laughs> but it, it's the whole thing. And she just became sort of the the face of it, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and uh I wonder. You know, because it's not like you can just like vinyl presses, like, you know, manufacturing them and, you know, having the personnel to use them properly. Like, you know, it's not like you can just rise up to meet that demand overnight either. That right. seems like a slow process. Um, yeah, I was concerned about it. You know, I mean, over the summer, um, there were things, Record Store Day, it always kind of irked me a little. I thought there's a lot of inessential like there is a used copy five feet over there for two ninety nine, right? I, mean, I suppose it's not in colored vinyl, but I guarantee yeah, you it right. sounds better and it's cheaper right. and right. You know, it's just got a certain mojo to it. Um, sure. Um, you know, so right that that sort of you know obviously I feel like that consumerism kind of ate its own tail in some yeah. way, and then seeing, you know, actually a lot of artists that I really love these sort of legacy artists like people the reissue people like the Beatles and George Harrison and you know they they'd put something out it'd be like okay there's 20 different versions of this and there's like an 8 LP and a 5 LP and right one on splatter vinyl right. um right it seemed like a lot of inessential like is anyone really gonna sit around every day and listen to outtakes on yeah, vinyl? Yeah. right or live albums or Adele albums, frankly. I can't imagine that yes. even though even though they printed 500,000 copies, I think it was, of her album. I think that's sort of why that's become the one that has pissed people like me off is I can't imagine her target audience being the kind that's going to listen to it on vinyl. 
surely you could just turn on the radio and it would be playing you know, or on or, Spotify and you'll never yeah, know streaming. what order the songs are on because that's not how, how younger generations consume music really. Right. If it's something that you're, yeah, right. Sort of listening to as accompaniment at the gym or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, no. And I, you know, I can't imagine that like 500, half a million people are going to go out and, you know, s- set up these hi-fi systems so that they can listen to this title, you know. I'll, uh, listen, I would I would be willing to bet that three hundred thousand of them, anyway, are going to exist on the shelves of Targets and WalMarts around the country for years and years and years to come. You know, they, right. they printed all of them, but they're not going to get sold. Yeah, you um, and I, I know that you. Um, I mean, you know, with like thrift store vinyl and that sort of thing, there's those titles. I know, sort of Herb Alpert whipped cream and other delights is the biggie but like there's all these things like the first family and uh my fair lady and all these uh you know things that just my whole lifetime i would just flip through yeah, yeah, yeah. barry manilow live um yeah. these sort of classics that you know like you go to any goodwill or salvation army in the country and you'll be able to build this particular this very specific collection of these right dozen titles and i feel like Right. In 10 years time, it will be, you know, right. Like you'll still Taylor's, be able to go to target, you know, yeah, and get the yeah, same yeah. Album. Yeah. right. I, yeah. I'm assuming. And whatever the most recent Taylor Swift thing, yeah, um, yeah. was that, was that like a four LP? Do you know that? I, do you know about this, <sighs> that it was pressed on four at 45 RPM? Oh, right, 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 right. So it's like a four LP edition, uh, which just sounds also absurdly expensive. Um, yeah, just at the you know retail level. Um, yeah, and I can and I know I only from checking Twitter. Do we have that album? I'm trying to think. I do have a soon to be 14 year old daughter, so we have our fair share of Taylor Swift albums. And I I have become uh, Team Taylor over the years. I sort of used her as the one that I hope my kid never listens to Taylor Swift, but I. I have since changed my tune on that, I think because of a lot of what she's gone through professionally. And I like the fact that she's sort of reclaimed her, her music from the people that own the masters and and that whole thing. But I also know that there's a lot of people that don't know what 45 RPM albums are. And so when they put them on, uh, they, a lot of complaining on Twitter about how the new Taylor album sounds like shit. (laughs) This album's not very good. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, No, that's a, you know, and a perfectly valid, uh, you know, thing not to know about. Right? Sure. You know, um, and I, I know that I have albums in my collection like that are at a different speed than I expected them to be. I think either the White Stripes or Jack White singularly has done a few weird things like that with records over the years, and and so I know that there are records that I first put on and go, well, this sounds like garbage, but that's because I had it at the wrong speed because I wasn't reading. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like in the sort of original, like, indie rock, hardcore, sort of underground, whatever the American underground boom of the 80s, that a lot of things that would, a lot of artists would, you know, self-release, this real DIY stuff, and you'd never know what speed something was at. So there, you know, would be singles or EPs that, you know, the first few times I played them, I played them at the wrong speed and didn't necessarily think... (laughs) <laughs> you know it was either like oh these guys are heavy yeah or, this is or, sludgy yeah. yeah right on man uh or uh you know these guys are kind of manic you know yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I my my vinyl collecting years didn't come until sort of after that. So I should I should go back and try to piece together some of the stuff that I've listened to forever. Just didn't have it on vinyl and try to check some of it out. Um, where was I going with that? Oh, so one of the things that I that I think is interesting about Hostraps, and I think that that sort of uh, lends itself to giving your band a little bit of a different feel. I mean, we've talked about that Hostraps are were a power trio, but there's a lot of different layers. Um, it's not just guitar, bass, vocals, drums. It's there's a lot of there's keyboards, and I feel like there's strings sometimes, and horns sometimes, and maybe a mellotron or whatever. I am a mellotron owner. Yeah, I that is what that is because as I was listening, I went uh, to what song was it? Because I actually made note of it. I forget, but um, I was like, oh, is that a mellotron? Yeah, no, I've been trying to, I mean, I think a lot of us have been trying to bring the Mellotron back um, and, you know, what I think what had to happen is there was a guy in Sweden who started making them again and made like a more stable, portable digital version that, yeah, you can throw it in a road case and take it on tour and you don't need a dedicated uh, tech to uh, spend five hours making it work every day. Um, So once that happened... It seemed like okay. Well, we can we can have all the Mellotron we want, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and I had I'd gone to see the Zombies, you know, uh, five or six years ago, and you know, I was like, well, that sound this sounds like the real thing. This sounds incredible, and uh, you know, that looks like something I could just put on my arm and carry. Um, you know, really the big, the big, the big step was, I think, just uh, telling my wife, I'm going to spend $2,000 on an instrument. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell your wife she's married to a Mellotron guy now. <laughs> you're mar- yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, so when I got, uh, you know, when I got it about six years ago, it's, this is funny, it, you know, and you have to write to the guy who makes them. It's a, it's very much Oh, like, really? Yeah, it's it's very much like, well, look, I, this is the only game in town, and he'll okay. Well, this is what I, you know, I can get it to Chicago and for this much, and um, yeah, I've got one ready. And uh, but they, one of the things that happens is that uh, you get a Mellotron bumper sticker. That's one of the things that comes with it. Now, and I didn't feel that I was buying a two thousand dollar bumper sticker, right? But I guess they, I feel, you know, Jim Shapiro, the bass player for Hush Rops, had put this really well. He's like, the sort of person who's going to buy a Mellotron is the sort of person who is going to go ahead and put the Mellotron sticker on their car. Absolutely. And, you know, so you would just, I'd find myself showing up for things over the years and like, you know, yeah, that's you with a Mellotron sticker, isn't it? That's your car, isn't it? <laughs> How'd you know? Yeah. Right, right. Why the decision to add the those sort of different layers and textures to, because uh, I know we talked about sort of recording live in the studio and it's tough to add all those elements, obviously when you're recording live in studio, but why the decision to, to add all those different textures and layers to uh, rather than just keep it traditional power trio? That's a good question. Um, you know, some of it is, I think there's a moodiness that 
and maybe just mood um, that was easier to communicate or is easier to communicate on certain, you know, sounds like, okay, well, if we have these kind of like sad chords on a string setting on the Mellotron, or, you know, that adds a certain, you know, it just, it's a, a form of shorthand. I don't know. It's, it's communicating mm. something that you just a hard rock and band unadorned isn't able to, you know, so it's all, I mean, I feel like it's all used fairly sparingly, but you know, you always know where there's a, it's weird. It's like, there's a hole in the music or something like, or it's like putting syrup on pancakes or, you know, gravy, you know, gravy on biscuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of how I feel about it. Um, and sometimes you're like, no, this, uh, this needs, uh, right. This, these pancakes need syrup. <laughs> they don't always need syrup, no. um, but sometimes they do. Or sometimes they need whipped cream and sprinkles as my kid likes. Right. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, or, uh, Right, or, or to have uh, what you would call it. Um, what is the cereal that they bake into pancakes now? It's Fruity Pebbles. Uh, oh, wow. Have you seen these? The, I don't feel I mean, like I have. They're beautiful. You know, yeah, they yeah, look yeah, sure. really nice in a pancake. Um, and, but it's funny, like, I'm such a, maybe I'm such a dinosaur here that I'm like, I wouldn't want that crunchy texture in a pancake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe in a waffle, I guess, but not in a pancake. I might be the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know there were, I was just sort of perusing social media before we were talking, and I know that there were plans for a show this coming Friday, but obviously because of the uh, third or fourth or however many waves oh, we're in now. I don't know. We're in the biggest one. I don't know how it is everywhere in the country, but it is far and away the biggest wave in terms of volume of cases right now in oh, the greater Boston area. It's yeah. gnarly. So, right. I mean, I'm assuming, you know, like without you know, prying too much that you've probably like done the thing where, you know, if you go on wherever you see your friends, you know, like online, you know, you go on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and you and you know i felt like every day for the past month or so you know a couple of people you know i consider close friends be like yeah well i i tested yeah. positive you yeah. know and it would that was a little jarring because the experience you know as grave as it always was it seemed a little more remote yeah um, right and you know that everyone in my house has had it by now and uh, that sort of thing. I mean, we're, yeah, it seemed like, and even just, you know, you book a show. I think we booked the show a month ago and it seemed like, all right, you yeah, know, book, booking a show. It's like yeah. the fact that even in that short an amount of time, like, okay, this is a week away and I don't think we should do it. I don't think yeah. we should get people together. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, when you think about the potential you know, the potential cost of doing that, you know, to, uh, you know, like, yeah, we invited all our friends to this place and they're all sick now. And they're right. You know, right. it's pretty easy to, you know, right. <laughs> to say, you know, we can, yeah, we can postpone this. Yeah. Uh, but I guess everyone's doing it, you know, at the moment. Yeah. We bought tickets to a show in New Jersey this coming weekend. We bought them, I don't know, 
six weeks ago, something like that, when we were in New Jersey for another show. And this show got announced. I said, yeah, I mean, things were trending in a better direction. Numbers were creeping up maybe a little bit, but it was also November. So that was going to happen anyway. And man, I don't know if the show is going to happen. I, I think it might be on, but then do you drive all the way to New Jersey to go to a show? And oh, I'm, man. you know, I, I'm obviously I'm triple vaxxed and we have good masks and all that stuff. But then do you want to do that whole thing? And do you want to be the reason to break that? Like it comes into the house. And I don't, I don't know. It's all oh, right. Funny. Like what? Yeah. How do you actually calculate the yeah. potential risk? That's yeah. a hard thing to do. Um right when is it when is this anyways this event saturday the 8th oh wow down in new jersey yeah ben nichols from the band lucero plays a solo show every year at this this little club in darwood new jersey which is which is nowhere and if anybody listening is from new jersey i've had people from new jersey when you tell them that you're going to garwood they say where the hell is that uh it's this wonder it's a wonderful little club run by really wonderful people it's a club called crossroads and they have really great people come in and ben from lucero plays an annual one-off show there every year for some reason and it sells out like way in advance but uh this is probably the fifth year doing it and I don't know. It feels feels kind of weird. Right. I wonder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with it was the same thing I felt, you know, when I, you know, because I talked to Josh a few days ago and I'm like, because he was going to be opening this mm-hmm. this show. Uh, and I was like, what do you think, Josh? And it was like a minute of us talking to each other. It was like, OK, well, clearly this is a bad idea. And, yeah. uh, you know, now is not the time. And there was some amount of like, well, do I want to play chicken with the venue? Um, yeah, right. Because you're always, you know, I'm a, I'm a habitual buck passer, so I'm <laughs> right. happy for someone else to make the decision. Right. But at some point, it's like, well, no, this is my, <laughs> that has, this is my decision to make here. Right. Uh, that has always been, I've been hoping secretly to get the email from the club saying we're postponing because then it's not, then I don't have to be the one. Oh, saying, yeah. Oh, going there's i don't know if you ever watched brooklyn 99 that's one of the shows that we sort of binged during quarantine because my kid loves it and there's a there's a character on that show whose last name is Boyle, and he talks about that the family method of uh decision making is to wait till the last possible minute and let somebody else decide for you and i oh, yeah. i was like oh that is exactly how the way i've been i've just never put it into words like that <laughs> oh for sure yeah um yeah and you know there was uh you know, we had plans to, and you may have heard this from Josh, we had we had a tour planned for early February, and it seemed like the same thing, like, yeah, things might be a little be- better then, but still, like, if the risk is the three of us having to stay in a hotel in Phoenix for 10 days before yeah. we can come home, right, right, maybe, maybe now's not the time, you know, right, right, yeah, that's, I don't, I don't know, I, yeah, I, I mean, I know we're all going to get it anyway. I know it's been like a game of whack-a-mole, really, for the last right. couple of years. And so, right. somehow we've there's a good meme going around. If it's an old Super Mario Brothers clip where Mario is like yes. running and all of the 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 um, fire spinning thing, and he's kind of dodging, and it does it legitimately feels like it's that been like ex- that. Oh no, I I remember I was laying in bed with my wife when I scrolled down to that. Yeah. Like, Honey, look at this. Yeah, and yeah. Like, my wife sent it to me. There that's it is. exactly right. Yep. Yeah, no, that's that's really funny because you know, I I am a 
I'm of the generation to to have Mario skills. Absolutely. Yeah. But like those levels, that's more like my kid. Like, oh yeah, yeah let me punk you that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, you know. Um, and I guess one of the things that's I don't know if it's funny or if it's not, but the fact that we're in, you know, the third year, going into the <laughs> third year. Um, I hated saying it out loud. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. And whatever wave we're going into, there is, I want to say that there is a certain personal zen and acceptance at this stage that like about things getting canceled or postponed or rescheduled. It's like, eh, you know what? It's cool. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, it seemed devastating. Um, whatever things, whatever, you know, whatever plans any of us had, two years ago yeah like what do you mean i'm not going to be able to and i think some people really got you know some people who may have appeared to be insensitive or callous in that moment um i am really willing to extend the benefit of the doubt and say i think that was shock for a lot of people like you know well no come on i'm already we're already we're in the middle of the country we're in the middle of a tour um yeah you know how bad can it possibly be yeah yeah yeah, I, I've talked to, like I said, sort of at the beginning, part of what what prompted this show to even happen was talking to people that went through canceling plans and how they sort of pivoted and how they stayed creative. And, and I've talked to a few people that that actually in a few different waves now uh, were essentially just outrunning cancellation dates, especially that that first wave where you didn't really know. And we had people that were over in Europe on tour and you didn't know how close to the end you were going to have to cut your tour and, and what borders were going to close when, and would you be able to get back to the States? And then, and then even more recently, uh, another Chicago band, Kali Masi was just over in uh, Europe and they had to cancel some of their, some of their European tour, but not all because things were getting elevated in some places and not others. And a year and a half into the pandemic, still the same thing happening, but yeah, you, you kind of have to give the benefit of the doubt to all those people, especially two years ago, because we didn't know what was coming up. Oh, yeah. You know, and I got to say, it was nice, you know, this past summer and fall, spring, summer and fall, like all of those opportunities to perform music outside and go see music outside, um, you know, and there were, you know, whatever that window was between, you know, the initial you know, okay, everyone's vexed. We haven't started using the word Delta yet. Like that little period right. there. Right. You know, well, I forgot about the before Delta era. <laughs> I think we all, you know, really made as much hay as we could and enjoyed yeah. as much music as we could. Um, and, you know, it's weird to think that like the Rolling Stones were on tour, like just the amount, the sheer number of bodies being crammed right. into, um, right. you know, and it's not like, you know, they haven't gone down in history as like, you know, that these were awful super spreader events or whatever. I, right. You know, so there was, I guess it's one of those things. Well, I'm, I'm thankful for everything we had when we had it and we're going into another winter and that's going to mean some different things. I'm, you know, thankful that venues, um, you know, in the main are doing everything to protect their patrons, you know, um, you know, so you know, whatever, this may be my third time trying to go see the darkness, you know, in the past <laughs> few years. Uh, 
right <laughs> and it may not be successful um but uh you know it, it, it all starts to carry less of a sting you know yeah as you go as you enter this stage of it you know yeah like, and there, there oh. becomes sort of a dark humor to it too like how many times can the same show get rescheduled oh and, yeah and, you know let's you come up on you could do a full another album or two in between the last album cycle that somebody didn't get to tour on and now you get to like people are putting out second albums that they haven't toured the last ones yet and it's a whole oh, yeah thing yeah it's i don't know you have yeah. to have some sort of dark humor to get through the whole thing i think oh absolutely and you know um you know it's also this feeling that like okay well it's january it's gonna be spring before we know it right. um you know, just a certain, I guess there's some, you know, it feels finite, this sort of the worst of it, you know, the yeah. hunkering down and, you know, rescheduling things and all of that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we, yeah, we had, uh, well, you know, it's a point, right. So, you know, whenever we finished the record and kind of really hustled that because of, you know, I think without, can it probably be too explicit just like really really need the stuff yeah, uh, yeah, as soon yeah. as you can get it and i think he was already aware of some of the emerging supply chain issues and right. uh production delays um you know industry-wide and so we did a show in september we'd been planning and the idea was out because you know i mean it's like imagine Boston and Chicago can be a lot alike in this sense that when it's cold, it's just brutal. It's cold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. And, yeah. uh, you know, so yeah, when Joe died, I just remember, you know, it was like the funeral was one of those, you know, like a five degree day and we're all yeah, yeah, yeah. bundled up and huddled in the parking lot, you know, talking about, well, you know, I guess we should all get together in the summer or something, you know, summer or fall, whatever. Um, when it's nice and you know when our hands are your fingers aren't you know falling <laughs> yeah, right. off uh, well and so that was we, that was yeah. before everybody was really vaxxed and all that too right, right. Back oh in yeah january yeah that's right yeah so I there's still a lot of that social distancing stuff was it has more prevalent up. yeah yeah right i think you know like my maybe my parents had just gotten vaccinated i think yeah. that's about where we were and um yeah so we did so yeah, finally September comes around and we did this event, which by then, because Delta like already had to be scaled down a bit because it was at our most at our freest again in that nothing's ever going to go wrong again period that we were discussing. <laughs> right. It was, you know, like it was getting every every artist that Joe had ever played with or who admired him, or we had this huge thing set up and like people going inside and outside, and then you know the venue is like okay that's really un now that's now that looks very unsafe and i think four artists outside is about what we could do then, well that's fine you know people are very understanding we're very understanding about it so we did a you know it was the first time jim and i played without joe and mm. did a hush up show and it was just kind of learning how to do it you know learning how to do it again learning how to do it in a different way and we learned a lot from it and and I think decided, you know, both of us that, you know, I don't think Joe would have wanted us to stop. I don't think, you know, this is just, it's a very meaningful part of our lives. And 
you know, people seem to keep coming to yeah. uh, hear this music, experience this music, um, play the way we play it. Um, so yeah, we so we you know decided you know all right, well we got a record coming out, let's do some shows, and we did a gig in December, and John Perrin from the Josh Caterer Trio actually um, on drums and right set up this you know the first couple months of this year as sort of real all right we're just going to hit all the markets that we need to hit you know to promote the album and uh at this point you know i'm pretty philosophical about it like this may it may all get canceled or postponed um and it's not the end of the world if it does i think there is there was a time in my life, maybe as the, um, you know, as the band leader and the person who would put all of these things together and sort of really try to make the timing pop in a certain way where if anything, you know, fell through or felt, you know, sabotaged, act of God, whatever. Um, yeah. It just seemed like a huge deal. It seemed like a real catastrophe. And now... Again, I think it's one of those things we're at a stage collectively where it's like, you know what? I'm not dead. You know, it's, <laughs> actually, things right. are going pretty. Things are going right. pretty great. You know, yeah, right. You know, somebody can't buy the album in January; they'll buy it in April. You know, right. that sort of thing. Right. Will you and Jim continue to make music together? You think is as a as a something, whether it's hush traps or not. I hope so. I think uh, you know. I mean, beyond performing, which is a sort of the thing now. Um, you know, I think if I wrote, if I wrote a series of songs that I felt strongly about, um, that would absolutely be the outlet. Um, and, you know, and ultimately that is Hush Drops music. One of the things that had happened is that our second album tomorrow, which was a double that had come out in 2014 and we toured for about a year on it. Um, you know, and in my van, very sporadically, yeah. just weekend trips where you'd do two dates and uh, be home Sunday evening. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of that, we'd sort of, as a band, just the three of us had kind of hit a certain gridlock in terms of our, just our dynamic, our working together. And I went off and... Well, I went off and made a solo album and, you know, it was one of those things like somebody, it's like a cliche, like, well, you said you wanted to be the boss, you know, um, (laughs) and uh, I found that, yeah, theoretically I had my name on the marquee, um, but there was something just deeply unsatisfying about it. It's like, well, yeah, you know, I don't. I don't have Joe and I don't have to deal with, I don't have to deal with my best friends anymore, but yeah, uh, yeah, right. But also where's my best friends. Yeah. Right. You know, and it's just the sort of, you know, I learned and I, we all learned that you couldn't go play with any other, you couldn't go play with some other group of people and achieve the same satisfaction, the same chemistry, friction result, whatever it was. Um, So I think I needed to learn that um, and that when the three of us came back together, 
I mean, certainly speaking for myself, but I mean, this is also what I got from Joe and Jim was that each of us had this very, very new and heightened appreciation for the, for the band. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It was like, yeah, it's like some fable about a kid running away from home or something. And then realizing like, he smelled his mother's oatmeal and realized. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that was sort of the experience that we had. And, and, um, that has its own value, I think, you know, um, so yeah, just in terms of mine and Jim's ongoing musical relationship and friendship, um, I think we've already, we've, we already took the the course where we got, we already audited that lesson, you know? (laughs) Right. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your evening. We've gone over an hour and I like to try to keep things a little tidy and be respectful of people's times. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Um, I will put links in all the descriptions about where people can find all the hush drops material and where they can buy physical copies of the new album and all that stuff and watch the videos. Cause the, the video that uh, you put together for only a man, just a man. I'm, Oh, what is that? Uh, One of the guys. One of the guys. There we go. Only a man. Yeah. Uh, It's really cool. That's a really, really well done video. And if uh, now that people have listened to the whole thing, if they know the story of Joe and his passing and his sort of importance to the band, it's a, it'll, uh, it'll pull at your heartstrings. Oh God. Yeah. I I feel like we might've gotten that one right. Yeah. I think uh, so. Well, I've had a great time. uh, Had a great time hanging this evening. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, this is, like I said, it's the third year of quarantine, but I'm glad we're able to actually do things like this. And I know some people frown on Zoom and have been Zoom fatigued and whatever. But to me, it's a it's a way of actually connecting with and talking to people and having the camera on forces me to to be present. And because if I yes. when I get on the phone, I tend to you know, my mind wanders oh, and my ADD is ripping sometimes. So knowing that Brothers. I've got my ring light on and we can see each other, like to yeah. me, that's like, OK, I have to be on. <laughs> like you said, in, in recording, in recording a, a, a live stream, um, right, you have to be video ready and audio ready and the whole thing. Yeah, no, it's a good way. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, I, I am I'm also yeah, just. I, why didn't they maybe they didn't have a diagnosis when i was a kid but yeah yeah i notice it when i get on the phone that like you know my wife will say it like you did a lot of pacing today you probably should have been count you know counting recording your steps in some way um because yeah, yeah. You, you got them all in during that you know yeah that's funny I'm, the, I'm exactly <laughs> the same way yeah. yeah doing doing phone interviews i prior to doing this thing that I guess we're calling a podcast. I did a lot of interviews over the phone because I pretended I was a writer and so put stories together and and yeah, half my interviews I pacing from one end of the house to the other and and so <laughs> knowing that I have to be like present at a thing it's it's a different sort of vibe which I which I enjoy. And I like not having to transcribe interviews anymore. <laughs> oh yeah, no, we're done with that. It's, it's, it's kind of nice. It's, yeah. It's not a thing. Yeah. Now just put it on a podcast. 